Glad you've joined us today. Glad you've joined us online from your homes. Thank you for being here. May this be really encouraging and challenging. Um, that's the hope every week. Encouraging and challenging. That, that's, that like delicate blend, right? Um, between uh, encouragement because it's been a challenging week. But enough of a challenge that we don't get soft, right? That we continue to step forward in obedience to Jesus. Um, I'm going to be sort of halfway through this sermon looking at a passage from Philippians chapter 2. This is Paul near the end of the Bible, letter to the church in Philippi, Philippians chapter 2. You can turn there if you like or look it up on your phone. the, The text will be on the screen, so that you've got that as well. If you're new with us, I hope you feel just right at home. If you're online with us, Carmen, my wife, is hosting our online gathering. Please let her know that you're here. We can reach out to you and connect with you better. Um, it would be great to make a connection. Great to see got a lot of kids in here. There's coloring pages and crayons and fire, all kinds of fun stuff you can play with. All right. <clears throat> All right, hey, this is our final installment of our Epiphany, our New Year series. And what we've been doing is we've been trying to elevate, lift up, identify, and then ultimately kind of offer several values and practices that seemed especially critical, friends, for this community at this time in the history of our life together and in this place. And so uh, I want to invite you as we wrap this series up today to consider one more what I would call a building block that will hopefully establish a firm foundation from which you can launch effectively and faithfully into 2021. A new year that already feels like uh, it's, it's, been last, it's, it's lasted a while. Here's, here's the last piece of this, of this puzzle that we've been putting together. It's humility. A building block... For the foundation of our lives as we step into a new year, humility. This is the Agnes Day. We started the series by kind of meditating on this image. I want to bring it back to your attention today. Agnes Day, Latin for the Lamb of God. This is an ancient Christian symbol. Um, The cross was often seen in the first few hundred years as just a little bit too soon. (laughs) <laughs> just a little bit too close to home. And so you, you got these beautiful, faithful Christian images in the early church. The, the cross has certainly emerged as the primary Christian symbol, but this is an early Christian symbol. This is a symbol of Jesus. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so what you have in this symbol that's so powerful to me is this is a symbol of victory and it's a symbol of humility. Do you see that at the same time? It is both a symbol of victory and humility. And those are two things that we in our culture don't often put together. Victory and humility. But those are, that is a distinctly Christian pairing. Victory and humility. And this is a, a faithful image uh, for us to use. And several of you have commented about the, the value of that, specifically that rendition of the Agnes Day. And, and so we, we made stickers. I mean, it almost seems, yeah, there we go. Um, I, I felt a little, I feel a little awkward. Like I should be, we should like carve it in marble. It should be that kind of a thing. But, you know, it's cheaper to buy stickers. So we bought stickers. And those are available uh, if for you. They're all over the, the, the doors and places today. And, and I'm just hoping that that would somehow, you know, that would just be a, a tool that you could use to continue to kind of think on this image. And, um, and that this could be a, a, bit of a, a bit of a touchstone for us as we lead into this new year. 
All right, so here again are the six practices that we've discussed in this series. First, establishing personal structures to support your values. Recognition that a lot of the public structures have been limited pretty severely. So the invitation is to establish personal structures, good habits, healthy routines. Secondly, consider what motive should move your response. What motive should move your actions? What should be pushing you forward this year? Should it be fear, other things that are being used, or should it be trust? Third, praying for and partnering with the Holy Spirit in developing self-control. Self-control. 2021 is the year we're going to need a lot of self-control. Fourth, embracing community with renewed intentionality. It's going to take more intentionality to be a part of a meaningful community in 2021. You're going to need to be really intentional about it on a variety of levels. Intentional to, to move forward into community, intentional to, to uh, um, respect people's needs and, and realities that, are now, that you're now intersecting with because you're interacting with other people. Embracing community with renewed intentionality. And then fifth, taking purposeful risks. Purposeful is the key idea here. Not risks for for the sake of an adrenaline rush or that great selfie, but taking intentional, purposeful risks. And then today what I'm doing is I'm inviting you and me, friends, very much me. I'm inviting me to mature in in humility. I'm inviting you to mature in humility. Against the backdrop of a culture that is just entrenched, it's just entrenched in our opinions, against the backdrop of all kinds of division, against the backdrop of a rapidly plummeting public reputation or view of evangelicals, we who are followers of Christ, we must embrace and nurture genuine humility. We need to mature in humility. The world needs to see Christians who are like Christ. That's what the world needs. The world needs to see Christians like Christ. But even before we get to this and consider the effect of humble Christian witness and the effect that that humble Christian witness has on those around us, I mean, I think it's easy for us to acknowledge that Christians having a reputation of humility would be a good thing. Okay, but even before we get there, what I want to do this morning is invite us today to rediscover the powerful effect of humility within us. Okay, so the focus for all of these six practices, including this one, is primarily focusing on ourselves. And essentially what I'm saying this morning is this, there is freedom in humility. This may sound somewhat ironic. We don't see this assertion celebrated in our culture, it probably won't be the the narrative used in any of the commercials during the football game today, freedom through humility. We don't see that. I don't see this connection being made even in modern Christian writings very often. There's a couple of exceptions. We see freedom being associated with conquest. We see pictures of freedom being associated with pride. We assume freedom will come in greater measure with greater affluence. 
That's the ticket. That's the association to greater freedom. But there is a quiet, persistent testimony of freedom, of liberation throughout the history of the faithful that comes not through conquest or through affluence, but through a surprising virtue, which is the virtue of humility. There is freedom in humility. The teachings of Jesus connect humility to freedom. And conversely, the teachings of Jesus connect pride to bondage, the opposite of freedom. So for a few minutes this morning, I invite you to consider this uncommon thesis. The path to real freedom is not shouting your demands. It's accepting what you're given. The path to real freedom is not insisting that you're right. It's admitting that you're wrong. The path to real freedom is not declaring what you know. It's learning what you don't. The path to real freedom is humility. Remember, I'm focusing today, I'm focusing on the effect that humility has on the individual. What I experience as I nurture and mature in humility. So I have a disclaimer, and it's very important within our cultural context. Here's the disclaimer. My kids are joking that all of my sermons lately have had disclaimers, okay? So maybe that's just, that's Nate being careful. Here's the disclaimer. Jesus and the Old Testament prophets absolutely call us to stand up for the oppressed. Absolutely call us to defend the weak. We're called to defend the vulnerable, the widows, the orphans, the immigrant those who are suffering under oppression. We are called to care for the hurting and the forgotten. So please don't mistake my comments about the connection of humility and freedom as my saying that as followers of Christ, we shouldn't advocate for those who are being pressed down because that's not what I'm saying. We should always advocate for the poor. We should always insist on basic human dignity for all. What I'm speaking today to primarily is the inner battle for freedom, the personal journey for liberation from maintaining like a successful image, freedom from looking like you have it all together, freedom from being motivated by the expectations of others in a way that is unhealthy. I'm talking about how we achieve freedom from fear, freedom from uh, things that enable us to or cause us to um, root our self-worth in achievement, freedom from what other people think, freedom from the destructive attachments that we have to all kinds of things in this world, which then enables us not only to be free, but then ultimately when we're free from these things, this is what enables us now. I want to talk about what enables us ultimately to advocate for the freedom of others. But I'm pointing out that this real deep and ultimately effective freedom inside that ultimately will, will blossom into something that will change the world, that, that's, that path to that freedom is humility. It's humility. My concern is that we're quick to embrace the idea that we can force our way to freedom. What I see in Jesus and the early Christians is remarkable freedom. I see freedom from fear, freedom from sin, freedom from depression. I see freedom from long-held racial divisions. Instead of fear and animosity in the early church, I see courage and holiness and joy. And the way to this kind of freedom is humility. 
Luke records two stories that Jesus tells, chapter 14 and chapter 18 of Luke. And what's interesting to me, and I never noticed this until this week, is that both of these stories end with the exact same punchline. Jesus delivers the exact same, therefore, this is the point of why, why I told you this story. It's word for word. Two stories with the same point, four chapters apart. Here's Jesus' point. He says it like this. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. All who exalt themselves will be humbled, Jesus says, and all who humble themselves will will be exalted. Exalted literally means to be lifted up. The original word means to be lifted up in dignity, in honor, and in happiness. And I think this is interesting because I think this captures so much of what we want. In other words, this is the kind of freedom that we crave. We want to be lifted up in dignity, in honor, and in happiness. Elevate those things for me, and, and I will feel more free. Jesus says that the way to freedom is humility. And then, of course, because he's Jesus, he doesn't just say it, he shows us the way. And the Apostle Paul reflects on how Jesus shows us the way of humility, and this is where um, he reflects on it in Philippians chapter 2. And this is a famous passage. You've, you're going you're gonna to say that sounds familiar to me. Paul is writing a church, and he's urging them to imitate Christ. He's urging them to be like Christ, to live like Christ, to walk in the way of Christ. And this is what he says. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Familiar and radical, right? It's just, it's just radical. Paul then says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as that of Jesus Christ. And now he's going to explain Jesus' mindset. And he does so apparently by quoting an early Christian hymn. You'll notice that the justification, the way the, the language is provided or presented in your scripture is, is different. Because Paul is quoting a hymn or something, maybe an early poem. And this is what he says. Your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." Theologians call this the great descent of Christ. Who being in very nature God, and then Christ just descends and descends and descends. Even death on a cross. Humiliating, naked, completely um, undignified. And then here the V, the V shape begins coming back up. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every name should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right, so Jesus not only taught, but Jesus also demonstrated, and that's what's so uh, instructive to us, remarkable humility. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. Humility linked with exaltation, 
humility linked with freedom. Let's push this idea of maturing in humility to the very practical by taking some observations from two books, one that was published in the 6th century and one that was just published a couple of months ago. Here's the first book. In the 6th century, there was a little boy named Benedict who grew up in a small Italian town called Nursia, and when he was about 18 years old, he went away to college to a town nearby called Rome. And when he got there, he was, he was devastated by what he witnessed. He was um, dismayed by the level of pride that pervaded the culture there. It was repulsive to him. This pride, this self-exaltation, this me-first thinking, it was destroying this once great democracy, which was now in, in just in shambles. And even worse than that, this pride was corrupting the church. So Benedict became so disillusioned in his first year of college that he dropped out and he went and lived by a cave down by the river, literally. And and that's where he spent the next three years of his life. People started joining him. Later he joins, he, he begins a series of small Christian communities and he writes for them a guide to live by. And the guide included, I believe, the first ever 12-step program in the history of the world. It was a 12-step program, it was like a recovery program, but the thing that people were taking this program to recover from was pride. In other words, the sobriety that was being pursued was sobriety from that self-centered always me first, thinking and therefore acting. That was the addiction, the addiction to pride. This was 12 steps to humility. And here are some of the steps. I won't, I won't name all 12, but here are a few of them that I think are especially transferable to our culture and really helpful. All right? And I hope this will be really helpful for you. First, in everything, Benedict says, keep the fear of God always before your eyes. In other words, in everything that you do, respect God, revere God, everything. There should always be a, an awareness of and a desire to respect and revere God. If you want to mature in humility, this is a way to grow and become more humble, to respect God in all things. Here's something else. Don't love your own will. In other words, loosen your commitment to things always being the way you want them to be. We say this all of the time. I say this all of the time. Oh, Steve, it was perfect. It was perfect. It was exactly like I wanted it to be. I need to loosen my commitment to things being exactly the way I want them to be. For Jesus, things are perfect when they're exactly like the Father wants them to be. Don't love your own will. Here's another step to humility that Benedict prescribes. Submit to someone else. You want to mature in humility? Submit to someone else. If you're a monk, submit to the abbot. If you're married, submit to your spouse. If you're a Christian, you submit to the community. Submit to someone else. It's a way to grow more humble. Here's another step. This is the most helpful one for me over the last five years. I think this is profound. Benedict writes, when obedience becomes difficult, whether because it's uncomfortable or because of unjust conditions, stick with it. When obedience becomes difficult, stick with it. Endure. Obey when it's hard to be, when it's hard to obey. 
right? And remember, this isn't about obedience. This is how to get more humble. I can become more humble when I obey, when I've got seven reasons not to, and they're all justifiable. But I will, the, the challenge is to continue to obey and to allow that obedience to be a method of, of maturing my humility. Here's another. Confess your, your sinful thoughts and actions. Confess your sinful thoughts and actions. Confession means telling the truth about what's actually happening. Another step that Benedict offers is be content with the lowest and most menial of tasks. In other words, there should be no work that's like for which you're too good to do. There should be nothing that's below you in terms of what you're willing to do. Chores, right? Remember a men's retreat where Jeremy said, mop the floor. <laughs> Remember that? There's, there's nothing, right? Be content with menial tasks. Two more from Benedict. Control your tongue. This is how you mature in humility. You just don't say every single thing you're thinking. Okay? Control your tongue. Keep silent. And then another step that he recommends is when you do speak, speak gently and briefly and reasonably which isn't so much about making sense as it is about not being emotional, not being, not responding to the situation and with emotion. Speak briefly and gently and reasonably. At the end of this chapter, it's the longest chapter in Benedict's book, he writes this, and I'll just read this quote. He says, through this love, he, 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 he puts this whole conversation in the context of love. He says, Through this love, all that you once performed with dread, you will now begin to observe without effort, as though naturally from habit, no longer out of fear of hell, but out of love for Christ, good habit, and delight in virtue. All this the Lord will by the Holy Spirit graciously manifest in you, now cleansed of vices and sins. In other words, what Benedict is saying is humility leads to true freedom. The truly humble person is free. Here's a couple ways I've seen this in my own life. Um, this challenge, specifically. It's very, it's very subtle. It doesn't end with somebody on like a, a victory stand. Several years ago, I was on this baseball team. I was coaching part of this baseball team. And um, there's all this cleanup that has to happen after every baseball game. You're supposed to drag the field, you know, get rid of all the scuffs and stuff. And you're supposed to pick up all the gear. And I was just the only one ever doing that. I was just the only one on this group. There's like six or seven men out there, and they all have something really important that they have to do after every practice and game. And I'm the one out there doing this work. And I start getting more and more and more and more resentful about it. Like, this is Saturday afternoon. What are you guys doing tomorrow? Watching a football game? You know, I start justifying how I've got, like, so I was getting all tied in a knot about this until something, like, just kind of reminded me, I am called to be like Christ, Christ serves. This is what I'm called to do. I'm just called to serve. I'm doing my job. That's what Christians do. Christians drag the infield. That's what Christians do. Christians pick up all the baseballs. 
Friends, this was the only way for me to get free from the resentment that was building up. Do you see what I'm saying here? I had to say, I had to embrace a humble, I had to embrace humility. I had to embrace the way of Jesus. Otherwise, I was just getting wound up in all kinds of, I was getting bound. I was in bondage to this comparison of who's doing the most work. Here's another example. Uh, a little while ago, I showed somebody something that I had done that I was super proud of. I mean, I was just so proud of this thing. It, was, it meant so much to me. It represented so much to me. And I showed, I showed this person, and they said nothing. Nothing. No comment. And, and later I thought, maybe their mama taught them if you don't have something nice to say, don't say nothing at all. Maybe that's what it was. I don't know. But it just drove me crazy for about an hour. Why didn't you say anything about this thing that means so much to me? And I was getting all tied into knots over that. And uh, I just had to decide... To, let, to, to just let that go. I just had to, to move on from that. I had to specifically let go of my need for praise. I had to embrace, I had to mature in humility. If I was going to get free from the fact that they didn't say anything about that, it was dominating my thoughts until I, see how these, they're not really exciting stories because we're talking about humility. We're talking about, but we're talking about real freedom, at least on a personal level. We're talking about freedom in a sense, or in, in my perspective, freedom where it matters. Freedom from resentment, freedom from um, obsession with what other people think. There is also real freedom from oppression, um, and from in slavery, from, from like we talked about last week um, with human trafficking and stuff. So there's also that. But here we're talking about the personal, uh, at least primarily. All right, a couple more um, really practical ideas about maturing in humility from another book, a, a newer book that just recently came out by an American pastor named Tim Shorey. It's called Respect the Image, Reflecting Human Worth in How We Listen and Talk. Tim Shorey is his name. Shorey reflects on how nearly everything in our, cultures, in our country has become a debate. There's two opposing sides. There's very little real dialogue, whether it's about politics or justice or education or even sports. We don't talk about sports. We argue about sports. We rant about sports. Sports talk shows are rants. That's what they are. Um, so this is part, he says, this is part of our current American crisis and in this way, I would say America is crumbling like Rome. You can't have a democracy without conversation. And we don't converse, we don't converse anymore. We don't have conversations. So then Shorey says, and this, this struck me as a very practical step towards maturing in humility. He, said, he writes, we need to admit that most of the time we're wrong. We need to admit that most of the time we're wrong. And here's how he qualifies that. Uh, we'll put it on the screen. By wrong, he says, I don't mean totally wrong. I mean wrong in some way. In opinion, attitude, word choice, emphasis, tone, grasp of the relevant information, or even timing. We should enter every dispute confident there will be something for us to learn, something for us to confess, something that we didn't know as we ought to have known it, 
He goes on to say that I am not all-knowing should be more than a statement of the obvious. It should be a conscious, functioning conviction that humbles me at all times. Consistently practiced self-awareness that we may be at least partly wrong can diffuse a lot of potentially combustible discourse. After all, if we assume we're wrong, we don't have to be right. And if we don't have to be right, we don't need to fight. Okay? I really appreciate that. He quotes modern theologian Professor Sung Chen Ra, who, who suggests in his book, which he wrote 10 years ago called Many Colors, Cultural Intelligence for a Changing Church, he writes that each disagreement can either be a battle of messages or a learning conversation. Every disagreement can be a battle of messages or a learning conversation. In a battle of messages, I aim to prove my point, to persuade you that I'm right and that you're wrong. But in a learning conversation, I assume there are important things I just don't know. Um, Ra writes, in a battle of messages, we fight over who gets to be right. While in a learning conversation, we place higher value on learning than on scoring points and proving ourselves correct. And I realized as I reflected on this this last week that much of the conflict in my home comes from engaging disputes as a battle of messages and not as conversations of learning. Trying to prove that, our, that we're right more than we're trying to learn about one another's perspectives. A way to mature in humility would be to assume that there are things that I don't know and then to turn these arguments into learning conversations. And that is always tough, and it is especially tough if you're the parent because there's this thing called discipline that is also valuable, and you're also trying to do that. But it's really, if you're, if you're the parent... Then, and you're in conflict with your, your, your child, I think it's harder to have learning conversations if you're in charge. But it's still so critical. Shori actually addresses this and says, we have all assumed ourselves to be right when we're in authority. Moms and dads do this. Rich people do this. Bosses do this. This is assuming that they're right because they have authority. Babysitters do this. Older siblings do this. I'm right because I'm the oldest. I was the old. I am the oldest of six. Coaches do this. Sunday school teachers do this. Nations do this. Cultures do this. Friends, such powerful advantages, they need to be neutralized by humility, not without, he, this is still part of his quote, without undermining God's ordained leadership roles in the home and in the church and in the world. So we, we neutralize power advantages through humility, but that's not eradicating that God ordained leadership roles like father, mother, coach, teacher that God's put together. So what Tim Shorey argues that we need both in our families and in the larger society is more humility. And the way that he advocates maturing in humility is assuming that you're wrong, assuming that you're not all right, totally right, that there's always something that you have to learn. That's Shorey's 
way to mature in humility. Raw encourages us to learn, for our conversations, our disputes to be about learning, not winning. Both of those are very helpful for me. All right, in conclusion, while humility initially sounds difficult and really challenging to me, it, it ultimately sounds really freeing to me. Maturing in humility sounds freeing to me. I want that kind of freedom. I want to be able to walk into a conflict-ridden room and be free because, and I want that freedom rooted not in my power, in my position. I want that freedom to be rooted in a genuine humility. This is so important as we engage a new year with new resolve. Just as we're going to need um, more personal structures in place in 2021, just as we're going to need more self-control in 2021, I think we're going to need maturing humility in 2021. Let me end by just kind of showing you a little bit ahead. The research that came out recently with this big um, study that Barna did shows that Christians are less interested in political engagement now than a year ago. Christians are less interested in talking about race now than we were a year ago. Christians, fewer Christians say they want to be part of a church that is working to address the brokenness of the world or in the world, and more Christians are saying that they want to just focus on personal growth. Okay? In other words, fewer Christians are willing to participate in the major cultural issues of our time. There has been a lot of debate. There's been very little dialogue. There's been a lot of yelling, and there's been very little listening. There hasn't been much that's been very helpful, and there's been even less that's been productive. So many people, in fact, more today than a year ago, would rather disengage which is a sentiment I can understand, but which means that our world is continuing to be shaped and formed, but fewer people carrying the message of Jesus are participating in the process, and that is not okay. We're called to work for the restoration of all things. That is the mission of Jesus, so we must engage. We're also called to mature in humility, and that is the method of Jesus. And so we must engage in that as well. We must mature in humility. Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. So may the church make a greater impact on the world this year than we did last year. And may we assume that in some way we are probably wrong and we have something else we need to learn. And may we mature in humility And may we and others become more free. Amen? Let's pray for help for this. Father, we recognize our role to a certain degree. I think we recognize it, that we are to participate with you in this process of humbling ourselves. But we also ask that you would enable us by your spirit to do what is just outside of our capacity, uh, outside of our ability Please, God, in a way that is um, reflective of your goodness as a parent, that you are a good father, would you grow us, help us to mature in humility? I pray that maybe one or two of these hints, these methods, um, 
uh, communicated by Benedict and even modern writers would give us enough of a handle that maybe even this week we could, we could focus on maturing in humility so that we could be freer and that ultimately we could more genuinely engage in the restoration of all things or the freedom of those around us. We pray for your help in this. We look to you for hope in Jesus' name. Amen.